Hey everyone, it's Abadesi, your host of today's Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. On this episode, I chat with Matt Navara, social media consultant who formerly worked as social media director at The Next Web and in digital communications for the UK government. In this episode, we talk about his career adventure so far as a social media expert, tips for makers on growing their audience online, the ethics of algorithms, and what social media might look like in the future, and his super pimped out smart house. But before we jump in, let's give a shout to our sponsors. If you're a writer, graphics designer, painter, musician, or some other breed of creative, your job is to turn ideas into products for your customers. Unfortunately, menial tasks like invoicing and expenses can steal time away from your creative process. FreshBooks invoicing and accounting software for creative professionals is the solution. It basically has no learning curve and on average saves users up to 192 hours a year. Set up your accounts and start invoicing in just minutes, track expenses and take photos of receipts with the mobile app, track time to record every billable hour, and automation is built in to save you even more time. Right now, get a free 30-day trial of FreshBooks, no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com slash product hunt and enter product hunt radio in the how did you hear about us section. As some of you may know, in addition to my day job at Product Hunt, I also invest in early stage startups thanks to Angelus Venture Fund Services. In 2017, I prepared a deck, raised some money from friends and people I've worked with over the years to bootstrap my first fund. I raised money and capital from LPs and Angelus handled everything else, providing a dedicated account manager, a real-time dashboard to manage my portfolio and valuations, tools to keep my LPs up to date, and all the tax and accounting overhead. They make it super easy for me to move quickly. While still relatively new, Angelus has already hosted over 130 venture funds, which can range as small as $500,000 to tens of millions of dollars under management. And as a fund manager, your job is to simply find great entrepreneurs and choose who to invest in. Everything else is handled. If you're interested in starting a fund, learn more at angel.co slash venture funds, or drop me a line at ryan at product.com and I'd be happy to help. Hey, Matt, thanks so much for being with us today on Product Hunt Radio. So you're very prolific on Twitter and across social media, but maybe for the listeners who aren't super familiar with your work, tell us a bit about what keeps you busy. Yeah, thanks for having me on. For those who don't know it in my background, a quick potted history, I, I spent a number of years working for the UK government doing social and digital communications. I, I worked for the government digital service, a small stint at the cabinet office. I worked at the intellectual property office. Um, so I was all around in government. And then I moved from there. I did other jobs before that. I was a teacher at one point in my life. Then moved from there to the next web. And so a friend of mine who's a guy on Twitter called at Z, he is a good family friend. And he said, look, can you come and write for us at the next web? And I said, well, I'm not a writer. I'm not a journalist. I've got no skills in that area. And then he kept pestering me and it wasn't too long before he said, do you want to be a social media director for us or a community director for us? We need somebody to do that for us. So I, I took uh, the role on as social director at The Next Web. And I did that for five years, a variety of things, looking after the TNW conference social as well as editorial social. And then now, yeah, bringing this up today, I spend most of my time now at freelance. And I went freelance in May, freelance social media consultant. Um, and I work for brands such as, you know, BBC News and Sky News through to United Nations and the Red Cross. And and then all the way to the other end of the spectrum to that's the sort of companies that are on product and all the time. So startups that are in the area of social media or digital comms. So I do all sorts of things around that field. That's really. amazing. You have so much incredible experience. I was at an event in London recently where the conversation came up around freelancing as a career and how more and more people are doing it, more and more people want to do it. And there were a lot of people in the audience who were working full time, but were interested in moving into that space. And that's actually something that I see happening in the product hunt makers community a lot of the time too, like people writing goals, like get my first freelance job or start planning to become a freelancer. I'm curious, since you do that now, what was the inspiration to move from full time to freelance and whether 
there was like a plan that you could like share with people or kind of like any advice for anyone who's sort of listening and going, ah, I want to become freelance one day. How did he do it? No, yeah, it's a really good question. It's one that I wish um, I had heard really good answers to when I was thinking about it because it was, you know, I asked everybody. I was super nervous. And I think what I I did learn when I was going through the process in my mind about a year, six months before I left the next web of, you know, is that something I could do or I I think I could be capable of doing um, is that I had the same fear as everybody else. And that's, you know, is anyone going to employ me? Are they going to ask me to do jobs that I even want to do, even if they do offer me a job to do something for them? And is it going to earn enough? You know, the standard questions uh, is what every freelancer fears, I think anyway. So I had all of those uh, worries. And I think the the way I tackled it, well, first of all, the reason I did it was because I've been at the Next Web for for a good amount of time. And I I love the place and Boris and Patrick at the Next Web are just awesome people. And I'll um, always appreciate the the opportunity gave me but it was just i needed something else a, a new challenge and uh, i th- think i'd done everything i could at, the, at that role and so for me i didn't really want to go back into the office environment for a variety of reasons and so i decided that freelance was something that i you know would keep me in the kind of environment i had been with the next web which was working from home remotely and going off and seeing them in amsterdam several times a month so what I did in the end was I went to um, South by Southwest, weirdly. It, wasn't a sp- it was for some reason I had a, an invite to go to South by. And so I'd been a couple of times before. I decided to go because even though I wasn't going in a work capacity, I knew the sorts of people would be there. There's a, there's a lot of social media um, people there in terms of doing roles at the moment in social. A lot of people in consultancy I knew that were there were going to be there. And I had a lot of friends that were going. And I thought, this is a great opportunity to bounce ideas off of some really great characters, people who are very experienced. And, and so that's what I did. I'd spent a lot of South by just walking around and sort of telling them what I was thinking of doing, telling them what my fears were. And that's what they, that's what they came back and sort of gave me some answers on, really. And that was how I helped frame my mind as to what I wanted to do. That's so cool. Um, I like that you took that time to speak to people who were a few steps ahead of you and then try and see what knowledge you could gain from people that were already freelancers, already doing it, and trying to learn from their experiences. I had a similar kind of thing before I started my first venture where I was just trying to speak to other founders or other community builders and just try and gain those insights. One of the things I realized, though, is there will always be something that surprises you. Like There will always be something about a new experience or a new career that you don't quite expect. And I guess, did that happen for you when you started the freelancing life? Was there something where you're like, no one talked about this or I underestimated this? The common ones, first of all, is that um, I, it's still to this day, and I've only been doing freelance now since May of last year. I, I don't think I'm ever going to get used to the fact that I don't have a set payday. That that's kind of relying on the end of the month is going to be money there, and and the fact that you know you can go for large gaps with nothing, and then suddenly all the money will come in at once. And so there's a constant fear that I don't think I is. I think it's maybe my personality, but I'm always nervous. I'm always slightly like I really need some more work, and then you know every time it's happened, you know next day there's like five things come in, and I've had that the last since coming back from Christmas I've had like a week where it's been quite quiet and I've been a little bit nervous about it and I'm thinking oh god I need some work to come in and in the last two days it's just been you know five or six things and, it, and that's what tends to happen so I don't think I'm ever going to get used to that and it's um so that's tricky um I think that I um I I've started to learn that you know you, you have all these jobs come in and they look like they're really interesting and then there's like some of them are really big amounts of money and you think oh this is amazing this is great and then quite often they they never actually come off they don't quite get to the deal doesn't get signed or, or something gets delayed and so in my head it's like done and so I've learned to kind of think right until I sign something you know this is not something that I might get a chance to do I might not earn this money I might not get the opportunity to work with this amazing company and so I kind of now am a bit more tempered with my kind of uh, excitement when something really cool comes in that I'm going to get my hand to do. I know there are probably going to be some of the Next Web fans in the Product Hunt community. We've actually done partnerships with them in the past. And I feel like five years at a tech company is like 10 to 20 years in any other kind of corporate. So I think it would be lovely if you could maybe just tell us a bit about like your time there and specifically like how did tech change in your time there? Like how did you observe the scene evolving you guys have a very unique vantage point as people reporting on stuff as well as doing all your big events and conferences yeah what were those observations 
Yeah, so um, I went into the next web coming from a, a really different place to what the next web is. You know, so I was working in a government digital role, so very much public sector, very bureaucratic, very you know, I had to get like sign off from six people to, to write a tweet for for a minister. You know, it was ridiculous. It, I'm sure it's not like that anymore, but it, but you know, it was very much you know, you didn't have a lot of um, scope to try new things, and and it was kind of very much led by you know bosses and chains of command. And so then went to the next web, and I, I know that people who who, who do know me have heard this story many a time so i bore them to death but for those haven't you know I, I famously say about the fact that i went to the next web and i got there and i just didn't know how to cope with that amount of freedom from somewhere where i've been before which didn't have that and so for the first month or two i was constantly speaking to boris who was my direct manager who at the same time was the owner and founder of the company or co-founder i would say to him you know I, i'm thinking i want to try this but it's a bit you know risky or it might go wrong or it might kind of look really you know a bit controversial for us and he was like no it's fine it's fine we're you know we're kind of quirky anyway we're all it's all cool just go with what you want i kept on asking him and then he would say look he stopped me one day i can't remember if it was on slack or, or something he probably was knowing us because i'm obviously remote but he said look keep doing what you're doing with the weird and wonderful stuff trying and testing stuff to the point that we get sued in court or someone wants to sue us in court because you've been too controversial when you get to that cusp of things then i know you've done everything you need to do to get to the point you've tested the boundaries so keep going until then don't need to ask me anymore and that from that point on it was complete freedom to do whatever i want so that was an amazing opportunity with a role especially with social because social's uh, quite i think a creative role as well you have to you know thinking of copy jumping on trends um, searching out content and and getting you know a vibe for what people will resonate with it's, you know take you need to have that ability to have some creative freedom so that was really good and uh and the next web and then and of course on my first week of the next with um I, they said just come over meet the team and don't worry we've got a, a conference that we called the next web conference it's only got a few people we haven't got any social strategy but you can just you can just do it just do what the best you can so i, I had no, no social team i had no, no one else i didn't know the company that well and it was my that's like a baptism of fire <laughs> well I, yeah I, I thought it was gonna be like 200 people in a in a kind of small kind of place and i got there and it was like three and a half thousand people and it was i don't know if you've been to the next web conference but they are very popular but also high-end production it's like going to a rock concert so um i didn't know what to do when i was in there but it, again um it was it was just the life at tnw is is it's a place that you won't get to work at anywhere similar it's it's really great and um i learned a lot about how to use that amount of creative freedom effectively and to um and have a little bit more faith in, in my own ability i think that's incredible i love that anecdote of thing oh there'll be a little conference of a couple hundred people and it's like a rock concert of thousands of people and it's just like yeah cash i'm just gonna run the social media yeah well the the comparison from when when the first one i went to was three thousand people and then by the time i left five years later that event now has twenty thousand people coming and i had a team of at the time 10 to 15 people doing social so within five years with one person doing 3,000 people at a conference to doing 15 people doing 20,000 at a conference. So it was quite a dramatic shift of growth for, for the next webinar. Wow, that is incredible. I really love the variety of stuff you've been able to work on, like thinking about writing a tweet for a member of parliament in the UK to a fast-growing tech publication. And I guess now working every day with entrepreneurs and makers through your consultancy, can you tell us a bit about your role in your business and how you work with different founders? Sure. And I always find it's really uncomfortable to talk about in the sense that I don't see myself as a, as a businessman or as, you know, as creating a business or anything like that. I just see it as me doing what I did before but without having a boss and and more from home than ever, which is great. So I, I don't, a lot of people say if you set up an agency or if you, oh, you've set up a consultancy. And I think that sounds far more uh, you know exciting and elaborate than, than what really is going on. But at the moment, I'm freelance consulting. Yeah, the sort of companies that I work with, as I mentioned at the beginning, really are everything from the top end, big, well-known brands through to smaller startups. And I think some of the startups are the, some of the more, probably the most interesting roles because they are creative. They have a lot more kind of, openness to trying out new things um, and also they, 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 their passion and desire to learn is far greater than when you walk into a big brand that maybe has been there and done it before and they have quite a prescriptive thing that they want you to do and and you try trying to deliver it to the best of your ability so I you know I really enjoy working with startups um, but I, in terms of what I do I work with them to help them with pitch decks so that they want to try and sell their product um, their startup to people that might use it or it might be to sell it to the media um, want to uh, get investment there'll be all sorts of reasons and they want me to have a look through as an expert in the area of what their startup 
does something with social to give them ideas of you know you know how it fits with their audience and and what the key messages are that they've got in there so I do a lot of that do a lot of beta testing a lot of kind of product road mapping to help them sort of say you know understand these are the features and functionalities that I think will make the difference for the customers that you're trying to target or these are the things that are going to get more attention from the media when you try and sell the functionality of your product you know your USP your selling points so I do a lot of that as well and then I also with startups do help with their you know their, their overall social strategy some of them uh, uh, literally have no idea they freely admit we've got no skills we have no one doing it and we don't have any resources please help us you know what can, what can you do to kind of give us some structure but some others have a bit more than that and then you're just really trying to um, optimize what they can do with maybe a, a, a very tight budget and i kind of do all of those things again with with the larger companies and it just the scale of it's slightly bigger and and the the demands are, or the requirements are slightly different Thinking about maybe some like earlier stage founders, I know a lot of makers in our community are probably working on their first ventures or maybe not. If, if they're not, then perhaps at this kind of like seed, pre-seed stage, they're still trying to grow their audience, I guess is what I'm trying to say. They're, they're, they're not at that level yet where their brand is, is super, super recognizable. For people that don't have huge budgets to spend, but are trying to get that early traction. Are there any specific social channels you could suggest they focus on or even just like a specific tactic or strategy you could share that they could apply to their business? One of the, one of the things that I see commonly with, with uh, lots of companies, not just startups, is that those that have a small budget or they don't have huge resources still feel that they need to be on all platforms doing all things. And, and then they get themselves in this position where they dilute what the limited resource they've got across so many different platforms. And then they either end up copy pasting all of the content to uh, all of the platforms, which then is not optimized for the, for the audience or the, the content they produce is very basic or it's quite you know, simple or it just doesn't really excite the, the, the people that they're trying to, to, engage with so i think the biggest thing is to think you know to don't worry about trying to be on every single platform think about you know who is your audience both in terms of location age uh, their interests uh, you know what how how does that marry up with the sort of product or service that you're you know you're selling effectively and then using that to guide you towards the most appropriate platform you know if it's something you know typically easy example is if it's young hip and trendy and stuff and it's kind of a young audience you know tiktok or snapchat still possibly maybe are they going to be here next year we don't know and if it's going to be something you know much more around b2b area then you might be thinking well linkedin has a lot of possibilities and uh, so yeah it's, so that, that would be the one thing and i also think that when you're a small company that and you're trying to fight for attention and there's a, that's the biggest thing at the moment it's you know capturing someone's attention when they've got lots of things they could spend their time focusing on and with a startup the best thing you can do is, is really be clear as to what your brand personality is because i've constantly found that in on social and with startups that the um, the ones that there's a lot of competitiveness in in an industry like for example let me give you an example like banking online banking now so you've got monzo and you've got starling and you've got all of these companies that are like these online banks and the ones that seem to be performing the best on social and also generally as a, as a startup have grown more successfully have been the ones that have the biggest and boldest personalities it's really easy to identify with and social is a, a key place where you can demonstrate that so I think for startups very early on to think about who are they is if they were to put themselves on a piece of paper as a personality and they would just describe themselves to someone else as a human, what would be their traits? What would, they, what would you, how would you describe them? You know, young, you know, kind of hipsterish. Would they be kind of somebody that's kind of authoritarian and conservative? You know, what kind of characteristics and then make that happen in all that you do and it's clearly identifiable and, and don't take yourself too seriously. So I think that's quite important as well, having personality. I love that. I think that, advice around really trying to focus on what that personality of your brand is is so powerful because it's so actionable and it really reminds me of that viral TED talk by Simon Sinek around the power of why and why it's so important to know your purpose and be purpose-driven. I think the anecdote he gives in that talk is around Apple customers and how Apple customers like resonate with the idea of thinking differently and like being drawn to very aesthetically pleasing, well-designed things. And I think when you put your personal personality out there as a brand, certainly I feel this way as a consumer, I just connect with that. Like even if I don't necessarily need your product, I'm like, I see what you guys are doing. I want to buy that. So I feel like that's really good advice and something 
people can really do. And the other thing around focusing on one channel, you're so right. I mean, when I was full-time as a founder, I was, you know, a solo founder after my co-founder left. And you do feel a pressure when you're looking at other companies to be doing everything that your competitors are doing or what other companies addressing the same audience as you are doing. But like you said, you'd then just end up doing too much and not doing any one thing well. So focusing on on one channel is, again, very actionable and very feasible. So I like that. So you (laughs) made quite a a controversial point around Snapchat and uh, maybe like their relevance such existence compared to other platforms. I'm curious to hear what are your other social media trends or predictions for the year ahead? Yeah, so it's a thing that comes up quite a lot this time of year, as you can imagine, being the start of the new year. So I've um, been discussing it with quite a lot of people. And I think um, that there is a a consensus, I think, amongst people in social media, both people who are on the ground doing it day to day, um, running accounts, but also people like me who are speaking to brands and and that. And I think some of the core themes that we're seeing this year and have been brewing for a a little while um, is firstly with groups and communities and and private sharing. It's something that is born out of the fact that people are far more conscious of their data privacy and data security and, and we've had those major incidences with you know, with Facebook particularly suffering in terms of the, the PR that they've had for Cambridge Analytica so there's a, a big shift towards using messaging app encryption and and private group and groups of communities and Facebook has been quite keen to get that working for them by pushing groups forward in the last 12 months already anyway and bulking out the functionality within groups for, for, for them as well so I think we'll still see a lot more of growth in that people always ask about AR and VR, I still don't think there's going to be huge changes in, in usage and, and activity in that area. I think, you know, Facebook's launching another a VR headset this year called Quest, Oculus, I think it's Oculus Quest. And I think that's going to be good because it's going to be in a middle ground between the, the Rift, which is a bit more dependent on being next to a very expensive, powerful computer versus the Go, which is the first Oculus headset, which was, you know, tether-free. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing that. Other things, uh, stories, people keep on asking also about Facebook stories and, you know, is that going to is that going to fly? Is it going to take off? Um, and I'm still I'm still on the fence with it. I really can't make up my mind whether people are going to go with it or not. Um, my hunch is that it will be more far more successful next year than this year, mostly because Facebook are pushing it so hard. Uh, messages pop up all over the place. I think they're in um, CES in Las Vegas in the last few days, and they had huge amounts of um, you know boarding and signage and promoting stories to to brands for Facebook. So from that point of view, it, and the fact they can tweak things in their algorithm, as we all know, I think we'll see stories do better. But I, I, I can't see it being as mainstream and as big as it has been on Snapchat and as on Instagram stories. I still think that they lend themselves both in terms of the the people, the typical user of Instagram and Snapchat, and the, the way that people. Use use those tools and products it's different from those that use facebook and on that basis i don't see stories as strong but i think zuckerberg is convinced that newsfeed is is not going to be around in the, in the same way it has been the last few years and it's going to be all stories or platforms so you know he's a successful guy controversial guy but successful guy and i think i wouldn't want to bet against him in terms of his knowledge of, of stories so that's what i think anything else that's major that's going on um i think also you know influencer marketing is something that com- comes up quite a lot which obviously lends itself to social media um i think you know there's still this big problem with influencer marketing and that's you know fake fake followers and fake engagement also being able to measure truly measure accurately and make meaningful decisions based on data as to how successful a campaign's been or how to sort of set you know, objectives for campaigns is a, still a problem. Still huge amounts of skepticism by many as to, you know, is it actually as valuable as it, uh, as people make it out to be? But it's still going to be huge. It's still next couple of years, it's going to be massive billions and billions of pounds pumped into influencer marketing. And, and the biggest shift, I guess, in influencer marketing this year is going to be around uh, micro influencers, which has been talked about probably for the last six months or so, where rather than people, brands, startups and big brands looking to work with, you know, the Kim Kardashians or the, big name YouTube stars of the world they're going to be focusing on much tighter smaller people as, as low as like a thousand followers um, through to you know maybe 10 20 30 thousand followers on various platforms who are high you know highly active very much strong engagement and really influential in very much tighter more niche areas of, of, of you know of, of, if industries whether it be lifestyle fashion you know whatever it might be um, I think it's 
it's more cost effective and i think it, uh, it's it, the authenticity is there more than it is i think that you know even now it's still early days with celebrities on youtube be, you know being building careers from that but um, people are already kind of you know savvy to you know what they're doing and they're, they're shifting a product and this is just you know the celebrities that were doing it 20 years 10 years ago is the youtube stars the new celebrities i think now that the, the use of micro influences um that brings back some of the kind of credibility and authenticity that they want to feed through to their to their audiences to to sell what they're selling amazing that was pretty cool i feel like i need to like run to a betting shop now and like try and like turn some of these insights into into money there are a few points that you made that i wanted to just like pick up on and dive a bit deeper into more just on a personal level as someone that's been in the tech industry and like things that you enjoy the first one is around stories personally i'm not convinced that every social media app or platform i use needs to have the stories function i feel like it really makes sense you know snapchat instagram the the platforms that i'm looking at for that visual reference like pictures of what my friends are doing videos of where they're on vacation absolutely whatsapp less so i mean i'm i often forget that you can do things like a whatsapp status and and similarly with facebook messenger i feel like facebook messenger as far as I use it, it's very like utility driven. Um, I can't always remember everyone's email, but if we're all going you know, to the pub this weekend or whatever, you can just drop everyone into a message thread and start communicating with them. Do you feel there's value having stories in every social media space? I think that there's, you have to remember... Think about it from the perspective of, of us is different from thinking about it from the perspective of the, the companies, the social networks. And so one of the big reasons that Facebook is pushing forwards and pushing us towards Facebook stories is to do with ad revenue growth. And so with the newsfeed at the moment, you probably see an ad in, if you were scrolling through your newsfeed, probably what every sixth to seventh, maybe if you're lucky, every 10th post will be sponsored in some way or boosted by somebody that gets to a point if they were to try and increase that to, you know, grow the amount of revenue they can get from advertisers and giving people more reach then you might be getting an ad every third or fourth post and and that then really deteriorates the quality of the experience for the user and then that really takes away from the platform and then you start kind of going into a, a negative area as a, as a company like facebook so for them one of the big push points for them to to move to stories is that you you know you have a whole new innovative format for for brands to to advertise on also for people there's there's still a huge interest in ephemeral content stuff that's going to disappear uh, it's not always for around i think that's a huge part of why stories is successful the algorithms for what they're, they're great for in terms of servicing bits of content that they think you're going to like and stuff but um with stories it, it, it doesn't rely so much heavily on on the algorithm it's you know you you can swipe through what you want to see you're, you're not going to miss anything it's 24 hours and then it's gone and i think that's still still appealing i think you were saying about you know other platforms that um, have it and why every platform has it WhatsApp has status. I've never used it in my life. Um, I know it exists and I, it, you know, it's very much similar to every other stories platform, but I, I don't use it. And everyone I speak to, and uh, it says the same, but then I speak to people mostly that are in Europe, the US and, and North America. If you speak to people in, in particularly in South America and in parts of Asia, it's huge. And it's, that's why it's the most popular. I think it's, I'm right in saying, I have to check my numbers, but it's the most popular stories platform in terms of active users, more so than in Instagram or Snapchat, but it's all focused on a specific uh, area of the world. And, and it's just not happening to be around the people that I, you know, engage with. And that's why it feels to me like it's, you know, unused at all. So yeah, I, I get your point. I, I'm the biggest lurker ever going with stories. I very rarely create stories for myself. If you, if you were to follow me on Instagram or any other platform that has stories, I'm really inconsistent and when i do it it's, it's just um if i'm doing something exceptionally and you know interesting that's a special day that i've gone to to see somebody in a concert or something so yeah I, i'm a lurker and i think there's a, there's a big generational divide between those that um are comfortable and understand stories and those that um, still find it kind of either too, too much effort or too complicated or they just can't be bothered with it and i think that generation as it as the the younger generation moves forwards and then the older ones kind of move out and then i think that transition into stories being the dominant platform it makes sense it's logical that that's the way it would go but yeah i i think um that it's not going to slow down and it's going to it's going to be a lot more features and functionality particularly with instagram stories 
more stickers, more ways to kind of be creative um, for people, probably for Instagram, some crossover between how stories work on Instagram and IGTV. Um, we'll see how that kind of overlap and, and whatever happens on Instagram stories in terms of new features, stickers or whatever else, you probably will see in a short period replicated on Facebook stories. Uh, there's a few bits that are not available on Facebook stories, but in, even in the last six months, a lot of that Instagram story functionality has already been ported over to, to Facebook. And I think we'll continue to see that as well. Thank you so much for this expert insight. It's so interesting how one can get so caught up in the environment or like society that they exist in every day. You kind of forget all of these other pockets all around the globe where people are using tech differently or stickier on other types of apps. So I really appreciate the insight into other geographies of the world. And the other thing I thought of as you were talking was, I mean, there's definitely something so much more delightful about creating that way to interact with the content we consume on social media. I love Snapchats, filters. There are so many like gamified ones now. So like you're not just like making you know a funny face anymore when you send a photo to a friend. You're actually like challenging them to beat your score. Um, Instagram do this really well too. I often have polls in my stories often about the most mundane things but I know that my friends are going to be looking at it when they're you know looking for a break at work or when they're commuting so it's kind of just fun to level up what we share so that people can get a bit more delight and fun out of it which is pretty cool the other thing that you spoke about when you were going deep into all of the trends for 2019 was influencer marketing so I interact with founders all the time, as you do. Like I said, a lot of them are often very, very early stage, you know, pre-seed, pre-angel funding some of them. And a number of them also, you know, just bootstrapping, not necessarily going down the VC route of funding. I am often asked, particularly for consumer products, whether I think it's worth investing in influencer marketing. I've had this question from a number of female founders, for example, with like consumer products trying to target Gen Z or millennial women. And I just wonder, what advice do you give for founders listening who are trying to answer that question for themselves? Yeah, it's it, you're right. It's a common question. I'm not an influencer marketing expert at all. Um, it's, it's a part of my work, um, but uh, it's not the thing I do. So I'll talk. I'll tread carefully in terms of sounding like I know everything and I don't. But I think you're right that there's a lot of people that um, feel that they again a bit like that. A fit, they need to be doing it, or if they're not doing it, they're missing out. Um, like anything, uh, common sense around. You know. It, have a look and see what others in your space in your industry are doing and, and how they're using it and how how effective you can judge it to be that would be a common sense thing to do in terms of certain industries and brands like the, the most i think i was reading a stat today and literally i shared it about a few hours ago an article around that the 90 something percent of influencer marketing activity goes on within a sphere of about three or four industries which is typically like lifestyle fashion and entertainment and something else and then the rest of like the world of kind of whether it be to do with you know accountancy or banking and other stuff there's a whole wave of people that, that don't don't use it um, and, and I think that's partly because it, it isn't always right for, cer for certain types of products like, you know I can't imagine that how influential somebody talking about I don't know um, a banking product maybe not a good example but uh, it, it is compared to somebody that's selling an aspirational product because I think a lot of what influencer marketing success is down to is that it, it's to do with aspirations and then the aspirational desire of, of people seeing other people that they look up to or respect or want to be like or emulate and so um you get that quite obviously with lots of products like fashion products and, and uh, other such things but it's hard to kind of have that kind of passion or desire or interest from someone who may be famous or influential from other industries i think it, the thing we have to think about it, with less sort of sexy industries like you know banking and accountancy and business to business stuff is you know it's not necessarily about the aspirational side of it. it's about the authority you know the authority of the person and their credibility and and their established credibility um, and i think that's probably slightly harder and maybe not as fun maybe to do i think in terms of is it, it should everyone be doing it no i think it'd be ridiculous to think that everyone should be doing it but I think that you can get quite a lot out of it if you've got the ability to discover the right people who are influencing the customers that you want to reach. And, and that's one of the things in the article I shared earlier. But it's, it talks about identification of finding these influences is still fairly hard. People rely on metrics still such as purely engagement of followers and, and, and keywords. And, and if you're still doing that, then you know th those people may still not be the right people that you, you should be looking for. And there isn't the 
best tools still. But that's something that this year I think there'll be an improvement in. There's quite a few products that are out there that I think will continue to evolve, which will help influencer marketing progress basically and find the people that are truly uh, valuable and useful to brands. And it will make it easier for people who haven't got experience in the space to start you know, testing the waters. That's amazing. Thanks so much for sharing those insights. I'm going to stick on the theme for influencers. I know you're not an expert, but purely just because you you work on these sorts of projects every day. And like I said, this idea of reaching customers and growing audience and growing brand is one that the majority of our community are still trying to perfect the art of. You mentioned micro-influencers and how brands are becoming more interested in them because they get more engagement and they're more authentic. I actually want to come at this from the angle of aspiring content creators. In 2018, we saw a lot of news around YouTube and the changes it was making to how it compensates channels. Basically, anyone that really wasn't significant enough in terms of views or audience lost significant earnings from YouTube. And so I know that there are a lot of like young people. It's a very millennial and Gen Z thing to wear lots of hats and diversify revenue streams. There are lots of makers that do content creation as like a side gig, a side hustle. Do you feel there's an opportunity for people who may have previously thought, oh, I'm going to start making YouTube videos and be a YouTube influencer to supplement my income to instead focus on becoming a micro influencer on a different platform, let's say Snapchat, let's say Instagram, and not be too focused on having the biggest audience ever, but actually be focused on having a very niche, small, but highly engaged audience. I haven't dealt with micro-influencers heavily myself, but my suspicion would be that um, that the people that are defined as micro-influencers and that brands have sought out and have spent time working with, those people are probably not making a career out of it or maybe thought they could make a career out of it and maybe still not thinking that they're gonna, it's enough to make a career out of. Because you know, micro-influencers, with the word micro, means that they, you know, they are smaller in terms of audience size and reach, but that, that audience they do reach is far more powerful so it, it, and more successful of influencing them and so for a brand it's it's engaging and working with lots of micro influencers who might be high, much more authentic um and so i don't think one individual person who is defined as a micro influencer could probably make a full career out of it i suspect maybe that that will be something for uh, certainly for a younger audience um, like uh, teenagers or early students and things where they can supplement their income and it's something that maybe wasn't so easily accessible or manageable a few years ago when this kind of wasn't a thing it's also i, I would imagine a stepping stone into seeing if it's something you kind of want to make your you know, life geared around and being an influencer and because and, it's amazing i've got like an eight-year-old daughter and all she wants is a youtube channel she wants to do makeup on youtube like there's no way she's going to be doing that i see speak to other parents and they're like yeah she, my, my daughter wants to say my son wants to do this on on twitch or whatever and so but yeah i think if we're going back to, to your question I, you know i don't if you're trying to make a career out of uh, influencer marketing it's competitive as enough as it is and it's and i think that um micro influencer i think see it as a side gig uh, more than anything else and I think uh, it's also a good testing ground to try out content creation and, and working out what area in, in, you, you have experience in. But the one piece of advice I've always said to people when they said, you know, what would you suggest if I'm just starting out and I've started to use social media heavily? What would you say best thing to do is amongst other things? And that is to find your niche. Find something that you are really passionate about, something that either not many people are doing or talking about or creating, or if they are, you, you're doing it in a very different way or in a, with a very strong personality or opinion with that. And that is really important because if you're just going to do fashion, you know, influencer kind of stuff on Instagram, then good luck to you because there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that are doing that. You need to find that niche, you need to find that kind of uh, unique element that, you, you know, makes it special to you. I love that point you make around finding your niche. I certainly feel in the last few years since I've started speaking very openly and specifically about my experiences of navigating the tech world as a woman of color, as a millennial woman of color, as a non-technical woman of color, I've found that people who really gravitate and resonate with that story have become my audience, have become my following. And if you think about the mainstream narratives around tech, and even around women in tech, it's often like quite different to the things I talk about. They talk about, you know, maybe like the lack of women engineers or whatever. And I just think you're so right. Like finding a niche, finding like one very, very specific focus is highly valuable. And I 
I would say to anyone listening, thinking, oh, I don't have a niche. You know, that's absolutely not the case. What is the thing that makes you unique? What is the thing that makes you different? Or what is the thing that you're passionate about? One of the things that I've seen over the last year and, you know, going into the future is the evolution of identity. You know, there are so many dimensions to each of us as our identity and how we exist in the world, whether that's the way that we eat, the way that we live, the people we operate with, our pets, our fashion. There are so many different niches that we're already living in. All you have to do is pick the one you care about the most and can speak authentically to, and people will find you, whether that's, yeah, like a lifestyle thing or a product or just even you and your story and your life, what you look like, where you're from. There are so many people out there in the world that have been waiting for you to start sharing that because they can relate to that. And there's no one that's done that before. So I, I definitely agree. Yeah, no, it's um, the, the niche part of it, you know, if for me as well, you know, I didn't go out and set out to kind of find a niche. But now on reflection, I realized that that was kind of a key part of what enabled me to find the sorts of jobs that I was excited by. And I, the, the way people follow me on Twitter will probably know that I kind of post out stuff about things that are new in, in Facebook's app or things that I find are interesting that's different on, on Instagram or, or any other social app. And that all just was born out of me going into the Facebook and Instagram apps and other apps um, on my phone on my iPhone and seeing the blue pop up that says new feature or whatever thinking oh that's interesting screenshotted it oh have you seen this it's new and, and it grew from there people are like oh yeah I haven't seen that have you seen this thing this is a, this is something I've got and I'm like no I haven't got that why have you got that what's that how do you how does that work and then eventually because I kept sharing those things there was no one really doing that that I could quite quickly realize that people were like me I wasn't the only nerd and geek that found these things interesting and there, there was an audience for that and you kind of have to kind of prick your ears and think well there's lots of people messaging me about this there's clearly I'm onto something here. There's people want to know these things and no one else is giving it to them. And so then people, because I was doing it and people were fast, I think probably relieved that they weren't the only person that found it interesting. Suddenly were sending me their versions of things that they found and then I could share those out. And then it extrapolated and grew and grew and to the point where Facebook and Instagram and Twitter call me into their offices and try and you know persuade me to you know not always share everything, everything I find. That's incredible. Yeah, I really hope that that story encourages people to be more open to putting themselves out there, those parts of themselves that they find interesting or that they obsess about. The internet is incredible because it connects us to so many people everywhere and just start sharing stuff and then see what happens. And like, maybe like Matt, your niche will come to you accidentally. (laughs) I just had a left field thought that I thought could be quite fun to talk about. Social media 100 years from now. What might that look like? How will people wow, use that's it? A long distance. Yeah, I mean, we could. We'll be an interplanetary species. Then I guess we might be living forever. We might be part human, part AI, part whatever. But yeah, I want to believe the version of our future that's like Elon Musk's smoking dope podcast he did that with Joe Wigan. That 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 thing was fascinating. I sat there and watched it and I I'd heard so much about it and I was late to watching it and I sat there one night and I was like, this guy seriously, it totally makes sense what he's saying. Elon knows knows the future. It's incredible. And I want to believe that his version of how life will you know kind of merge with AI and and our virtual reality worlds will appear will is is the future that happens. And and and, and if you anyone hasn't seen it you should watch it. It's great. But I think that the plausibility and the the feasibility of the, the, the suggestion he makes around AR and VR and how, and, and how your brain will interface with uh, technology and then that your body, your human body won't necessarily be vital. So you will live on beyond that. It's your, you know, I think that that does seem like a, a plausible explanation of how things will go. In terms of social media in a hundred years, you know, I find it hard enough predicting what's going to happen next year because it changes so quickly and, and then people are so fickle with things. Um, and right at the moment, right now, as we're talking in 2019 it's so volatile with you know we're right at probably the most pivotal moment i would argue in the last few years of social media as to you know where it's going to go you know is people's interest going to wane are social networks going to be regulated and if they are regulated by governments is it going to be effective all of those kind of uh, questions are going to it's going to dramatically change i think it's certainly in in the medium term in the next three years maybe not in the next year how we use social media and and how uh, 
um, our successful companies like Facebook and others will be. I think it, for me, it's 100 years is probably too far to kind of put any sensible suggestions forwards. But I think certainly if we were to spin forwards 10, 20 years from now, I think that social media will look completely different. I don't think it's going to resemble anything like we've got now. I think uh, if the trend that we started going down at the moment it continued for the next few years and towards the you know 2030, then I think that it will we've seen the social media climb up the kind of hill of oh this is amazing. We share everything. We show everyone everything we do in our lives and be very open and engaging. And now we're kind of on that downhill slide of the kind of the, the chart where people are kind of actually this is not this is not good. Having everyone able to talk to everyone openly with no censorship and people being you know, free just doesn't work for lots of reasons it doesn't work in my opinion not and it's not one company or one or it's a cultural thing and i think that now people are kind of pulling back they want to hold back on uh, what they share they want some privacy they're scared about how secure their data and their information is and they want to kind of go back to that position where it's a, a maybe a happier medium between having uh, sharing things with people you trust and you care about or you're interested in engaging with and don't feel you're going to be attacked by versus everything to everybody and so i think it follows that trend that will probably go back to a, a kind of a, a slightly similar version of what we had you know maybe two years three years into social networks where it was less public sharing much more about forums and, and communities and and uh, building around interests and niches fascinating i appreciate that we could probably do a whole podcast on on the question i'm about to propose but just keen to maybe get your quick headline thoughts do you see social media being regulated more. We've already seen a lot of conversations in the media around the relationship between, let's say, social media and mental health, for example, and conversations around, you know, what's the right age to start using social media? How do you see the relationship between social media and governments evolving in the near future? I think that we will, 2019 will be a defining year in social media and social networks around regulation even if the regulation doesn't uh, get implemented fully and the effectiveness of it isn't able to be gauged this year i think in terms of how much that will journey will will be progressed in terms of the route down in towards regulation i think that will be happen quite a lot this year um, i think in terms of its effectiveness from looking at America and watching those Senate hearings with um, Zuckerberg, it made me cry, and it, it really was awful. You know, cry in a comical sense rather than cry in sadness. But it was—I don't know—you know—it felt like watching a film, Cocoon. Have you seen that film, Cocoon, where it's like all the old people in the nursing home? Uh, it was just like. It felt like it felt like all of those people have been put in in the Senate as in, in charge of the Senate, and then they were told, right, Facebook are here, ask them some questions, and then they were like, okay, so can I email from WhatsApp? Yeah. I'm like, no. I'm- Seriously, this is like these are people that could be dictating the future of how technology is regulated on, and where you know how much they're called into account, and they they have no idea. So that didn't give me a lot of hope. Um, but I'm I'm I am hopeful that that um, when proper regulation is discussed and, and progressed, that whatever is implemented, that they they will use people that are industry experts that are uh, external that there is some degree of independence but i think i'm too cynical to think that it will be as simple as that and i think that whether it be through lobbying or through the fact the pace of change is so you know so 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 great any implementation of regulation they put in it will be outdated so rapidly that its effectiveness will be you know short-lived i think that there is something to be gained from people having an oversight over these social networks and, and i think if they try and be too specific and too done directive around individual elements of social media, then I think that the pace of change will get the better of them and it will be, it'll, it'll, they'll never keep pace with it. And I think it'll be ineffective. I think if they have a much broader kind of overarching kind of sense of how they will be overseen and how they'll be controlled and what they can and can't do will be a more effective way to go. And one of the things that has been most interesting I read in the last year is, you know, that the UK government, UK parliament is looking at, you know, an, uh, an ethics committee for algorithms. It sounds very interesting and intriguing, but it, it makes sense, you know, that one we as general citizens don't really have a clear understanding of how algorithms work on a general level. We certainly don't know from Facebook the secret sources as to what goes into their algorithm and what makes it work. And if it's using our data and it's serving us the news of what's going on in the world or what our friends are doing and, and what, you know, it's, you know, the amount of 
people that use social media to get their news more increasingly more then i think it's right that there should be far more transparency around how those algorithms work and if there's unconscious bias in them because we know that if people maybe not have got into them thinking I'm going to you know, purposely put in this algorithm, you know, a conservative bias. But if, if the way the person, the engineers have created, they didn't realize they built in biases into those algorithms, then that has a huge potential for a social network like Facebook, which has two and a half billion users or whatever to shape how the world progresses. And, and you know, that's concerning. So I, 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 I'm keen for things to progress. And uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Damien Collins as well, who's a guy in the UK, is, a, is an MP, who's the one who's been de- desperately banging on the door of Facebook, telling them to get Zuckerberg into UK Parliament. I think he's doing a great job, and um, I think it's right that he should uh, push forwards. I love all your insights. I feel like I'm at a lecture almost, in a good way, though, like a really good one, um, learning a lot. And that final point around ethics of algorithms, and really ethics in tech in general, I remember studying philosophy at A-level or whatever, and never could I have guessed that the tech world and the world of philosophy would collide so much as it does now with artificial intelligence. And I think we're going to see a lot more debates around that. There are already a lot of great people, like you said, talking about it in the world of politics, in the world of academia. There are a number of great books and journalists talking about it all the time. I think the Google algorithms, the one that's probably been discussed the most historically, just because 80% of internet searches happen on Google, And we all know what happens when you type in, why do women? The next thing that follows isn't necessarily a good thing. My dad's from Nigeria. Why do Nigerians? Again, the next thing isn't necessarily a good thing. So I think it's amazing that we have these conversations. And yeah, let's see what happens. So switching gears a little bit, as you know, at Product Hunt, we love products. Uh, Hundreds of new products are launching every day from makers around the world. And I'd love to hear from you. What are those products that you cannot live without? And this could be as the businessman, entrepreneur, or as the dad, or whatever. What are those things that you can't live without? Yeah, well, I, the thing that I have most fun playing with is, is anything with that's new, that's quirky with social media, I, I want to play with. So if it's if on product time, when I see, like, I think a couple of days ago, there was one to do with um, someone that created the ability to print your tweets on, on wooden bags. Uh, I thought that was great. I, you know, a bit of fun. You know, it was great. Um, and then, but right away through to like genius, like Chrome extensions, it's, you can clearly see that some somebody that maybe not a business person per se, but was uh, is interested in coding and has the technical ability to create extensions, seen a need, and they've gone in and built the Chrome extension to deal with a problem that maybe they've encountered or think others are encountering. And and so some of the my most used product hunt type things I have are ones that are not necessarily new or highly. Um, innovative they're just really useful so one of them i used to use heavily when i was at the next web was one that was a called twitcher and twitcher was uh, it allows you to when you're on desktop twitter you can switch through various accounts you have previously logged into on twitter with just one tap so rather than having to sign out of twitter sign in again with the, and remember the password you just click the button on twitcher shows you all the accounts and then you can switch through which at the time was you know maybe slightly less useful now with other tools that maybe do similar things but i use that quite heavily pasty pulse is a product i find quite interesting because finding content for a news publisher is one of the big parts of, of the job of a social media editor or, or a social media manager and so tools like data miner this one pasty pulse news whip is it's always one of my favorite companies because I know the founder very well. It's a really good product and it just does things really effectively. So if you, for those who don't know what News Whip is, News Whip is the, obviously the ability to find out what the most engaging content is on the major social networks in either real time or in uh, set time frames so you can find content that's starting to get a lot of attention and you might want to write about it yourself or it's content that you might not want to share if you're a, a site that might want to sort of repurpose other people's content and lots of other things but it's really useful another thing app and um, that i'm really interested in at the moment is uh, one called kinzen so kinzen's created by a guy called mark little who uh, used to work for twitter in in Ireland and he used to be a reporter I think for CNN I might be wrong but uh, really uh, amazing guy I spent a few hours I first met him spoken to him a lot on Twitter but I haven't ever met him and I met him in Dublin when I was uh, uh, speaking at an event there and he was talking to me about what they're building and so Kinzen's a, like a new news app that is really built around uh, help making the community have far more involvement in how they receive their news and configure how you know what uh, content they want to consume and, and how they want to consume it and it's 
is trying to find a new way for people to yeah consume news. So that is going to be a subscription news product, but at the moment uh, they're beta testing it. I think it's launching soon. But yeah, Kinzen, I think it's K I N was it Z E N? I think as you spell it. So yeah, have a look at that. It's really cool. Yeah, I think those are the the main ones. And, and one job that companies come to ask me to work, um, do some stuff with, or we've talked about doing things with, is a company called Beam, uh, and that that was a really interesting one. And it's a product that helps um, homeless people in the UK. I think it's based particularly to train and fund training for homeless people to get them back into work. Um, and it's an app that kind of links and ties people between the employers and um, homeless people and, and other organisations that kind of make that connection between those communities to to help both sides of it, but particularly help the homeless and i think that's a, a great way of seeing how technology and startups um, can deliver some really um, great uh, success stories oh that's fantastic i love tech for good it's definitely one of the spaces i always try to keep an eye out for social impact tech just in general it's definitely a growing trend so much so that we created a new golden kitty award category for it for the 2018 products so thanks so much for sharing those i'm curious to know do you have any smart devices at home, like an Alexa or a Google Home? Of course I do. Yeah, I, If I can get any of the latest tech, I will try and persuade my, my wife to let me buy it. We bought a dishwasher the other day. We needed to buy a dishwasher because our dishwasher had broken. And she said, just get a cheap one from Ikea, just £200. We don't need anything fancy. It just needs to wash dishes. They're all going to be, you know, if you spend £1,000 on a dishwasher, it's going to be the same as one that's 200 just with a few bells and whistles. And I saw one that, you know, it shines a laser on your floor to show you how much time's left of the cycle so you can see without having to open the machine how much time's left and add all these you tap the front of it and the door like a bit like a, um, a self-opening door automatic door opens the dishwasher completely unnecessary but yeah I, yeah I, I do get into all of that stuff um in terms of the smart stuff i've kind of sunk my spending on the google assistant side of the fence so i'm i'm definitely team google assistant versus alexa or, or the other options that are out there i think mostly because i've always found that google voice recognition has been far greater than any other products i've used so that's one reason also i the first kind of smart product i bought years ago was the nest smart thermostat and uh, so i thought well i've got that so i want to build upon that ecosystem so i now i've got google mini uh assistant mini and then i've got the full size one in the kitchen I've got the uh lights philips hue lights I've got the nest cameras so my house is kind of like a yeah a, a weird tech thing my wife says look if the electric goes off or wi-fi goes down we're basically buggered because you can't do anything in the house like all the, all, the, all the gadgets will stop working. The doors will be locked. The shutters will go down. Lasers are going to be flying out. So I'm, yeah, I'm a bit nervous that that, will, that they will happen and she'll say, I told you so. But yeah, I'm heavily invested in it. I love it. That's amazing. Final question. You're very committed to tech, as we can tell from your home, which is great. Uh, when I get the chance to talk to parents on Product Hunt Radio, I do like to ask them about how they are planning to manage or work with their children to manage their children's relationship with tech and social media specifically because you know I'm an adult and I still get addicted to my phone and have to create healthy boundaries and barriers is this a conversation you've had at home and what do you think your approach might be yeah it's a very much a hot topic you know so I've got a, a son that's five years old I've got a daughter that's eight um, they're in an era where tech is just kind of the norm um, and so they're heavily into iPads and, and things not so much into consoles and things like that probably the last year before up until about six months ago up until then they we were very quite relaxed about them having their iPads and using tech in general um, they didn't have access clearly they're too young anyway but they didn't have access to the internet really it was more a case of using iPads watching YouTube kids watching their Netflix and maybe playing the old console game. Now that they're getting older and uh, they're starting to be much, you know, smarter to how they can kind of use these tools and apps and then seeing what the discussions and the challenges are with, with this sort of stuff, we've become a bit more conscious of, of being responsible parents, I think. So um, we've realized that we need to change that. So we have a screen time rule in our house. So uh, they have up to one hour of screen time a day maximum in, a, in the week. Um, so when they get in, basically they tend to use that in the evening when they get in. And uh, they can use their um, iPad or watch TV or play on a console for a, um, a, an hour or two at most. And then that hour or two mustn't be any closer than an, uh, an hour before bed so that the last hour before bed isn't in front of a sort of blue and light emitting device, basically. I thought that was a fair kind of balance between kind of not being ridiculously kind of over worrying about it and, and also not kind of just let them do what they want. And, and at weekends, they have a bit more kind of freedom to, to use it a bit more than that. And I think part of that came out of uh, the fact that 
our one of our, my son's teacher was saying with his writing, his handwriting, and using of a pencil and stuff, basic skills that he was really struggling with it. And I was like, well, that's, okay, that's disappointing. Well, how can we? Well, what, what's the problem here? And I, I, I strongly believe that it, because uh, when I was younger, I play with play doh and I would play with um, like toys, car toys, anything with your fingers and your hands, and all that kind of stuff helps you kind of grow um, the muscles in your hands. You might as your sort of uh, those micro skills with your fingers. Watching an iPad, not using any Play-Doh or, or any other of those toys where it's very much using your hands, you're just pressing a button on the screen or watching the screen really stifles that kind of uh, basic development, I think. And so I think I've realized that parents can be a bit naive as to to just throwing an iPad in and, and it will all be fine. So I mean, we're a lot more cautious. Um, and I think in terms of internet usage, they, that we just don't let that happen without us around anyway. And I even to the point where I check in on what they're watching on, on Netflix every now and then because, you know, people are vicious out there and they will stick in horrible adverts in between YouTube kids programs and, and it sneaks through. So um, yeah, I, I keep an eye on it. That's amazing. Okay, Matt, well, you've really given us a lot of gems today. I appreciate you taking the time. Where can people find you and maybe anyone out there who wants to work with you? Sure. Well, so um, find me on Twitter is my name. So it's at Matt Navarra. And also one of the things I'm spending a lot of time on, I should just quickly mention for those who are geeks of social, is there's a group on Facebook that I started about six months ago called uh, the Social Media Geek Out. Uh, you can find it. It's called Social Geek Out. If you search in uh, Facebook, or you'll find it on my Twitter account anyway. Uh, it's grown in six months from nothing to 5,000 people. And it adds about 1,000, 2,000 people a month at the moment with no real effort behind it just people finding it which is great uh, and it's a place where i just share all the sorts of things i share on twitter about interesting new stuff that the, these social networks are doing i curate what's going on in the world of social media as in the news it's in you know whether it be in the next web or uh, on other sites as well um and uh, have lots of just fun discussions in there so um yeah if, if that's your bag then then find us uh, social media geek out on facebook otherwise yeah if you just google my name you'll find something and we'll, we'll connect somewhere and I'd, I'd be great to work with some more interesting companies. Fantastic. Well, on behalf of everyone at Product Tag, just want to take this moment to thank you so much for your time. We've loved having you, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.